I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. I'm Taylor Sparks from the University of Utah. I'm in the material science and engineering department. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Andrew Falkowski, and Jared Duffy, our producer and social media manager. Guys, how have you been? Good to be here. I want people to just appreciate how complicated this setup is. We've got, we're stuck in a shed and we've got Andrew calling in over Discord all hooked up to this one mixer. So we're really doing the most we can to make sure you guys have a good experience listening in on this. The highest quality audio that can be done during the age of quarantine. We've even got my kids and wife off doing a food run, so there shouldn't be as much background noise. Okay, so a couple things before we dive into episode today. Did you know that we did a bonus episode with video and yet you can find it on YouTube? Google Materialism Taylor Sparks on the YouTube search bar and you will find us there. So check it out. We did a cool video that talks not only because the last episode was about soap, but we decided that we were missing out by not talking about the cool science of hand sanitizers. And so you can check that out. Uh, Andrew, what do we have for him today? Yeah, this episode's actually really exciting. You know, most of the episodes, we kind of come up with the topic and then we reach out to any experts in the field who we want to talk to. But this one was kind of different because we actually had someone reach out to us and give us the episode idea. So this is a really awesome uh, interview we have for you at the end of the episode where we have a company that uses um, various characterization techniques and big data to try and monitor polymer processing and try to improve the processes. But before we really get into that, we want to just go over a couple of things that we're going to talk about in the interview so that you'll have the context for it. So polymer synthesis often involves a mixture of several different component molecules. These are called monomers. You can have everything from backbones, crosslinkers, catalysts, various other functional groups, depending on what kind of properties you're going for, or some combination of all of these. And really finding the right ratios and the processing conditions is essential to achieving the desired properties. Um, an imbalance in any sort of batch can actually ruin the batch entirely, and you could get a lot of undesired waste products. Um, but there's a challenge, right? Because you can't really tell how the reaction's going until the end of it, usually. You have to do the tests after it's been performed. So you yeah. end up getting into this testing cycle. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. If you look at like the introductory MSE textbook, it makes polymer synthesis seem really simple. You've got the pictures of your monomers and they start linking together like little Legos until you have this long strand. But in practice, it's a little bit complicated because you can have different initiators. Temperature plays a role. Um, you end up with a distribution of chain lengths, not just one chain length. And so there's a lot of trial and error in, in manufacturing polymers where they will try certain conditions of temperature or amount or concentrations or whatever. And then they'll see what came out. But that's really wasteful. You hit it right on the head. You're going to make all these undesired waste products, but what we want is a way to determine what's working in real time so that you can get the exact product you want without making vat after vat after vat, only to find that it wasn't what you were looking for. So what are some of the things that we can measure in real time, Andrew? Right. So some of the properties of interest when you're looking at polymer reactions is, one, 
okay, what's the rate of reaction? How much product do we actually get? You know, like, do we have any unreacted monomer uh, that's left over? Um, we might be interested in the physical properties of the polymer as well. We might be saying, okay, is it transparent? Is it translucent? Or what is the degree of transparency? Um, we can also ask about the structure of it. Did we actually make the polymer that we were interested in, uh, as well as many other ones? And so there are several established characterization techniques for looking at this. So the first one we want to look at is UV-Vis spectroscopy, where UV refers to ultraviolet light and Vis is referring to visible light. So what are we doing here? So within a polymer, you will typically have um, what's known as conjugated double bonds. So if you can imagine a polymer chain, right? sometimes you'll have double bonds that seem to alternate with single bonds. Now what ends up happening, if you remember to your introductory chemistry, you have sigma and pi bonds. The sigma bonds will typically be between the two carbon atoms of the chain, interlocking them almost linearly, but the pi bonds tend to stick out to the side. Now, if you have a conjugated structure, these pi bonds can align, and you have electrons that become delocalized from the chain shared between those pi bonds. Now, why this matters for this. So if you're shining UV light on a polymer or any sort of organic molecule, the band gap or the difference between energy levels for the electrons within that polymer is going to be huge, so much so that we don't have enough energy from UV light to actually promote electrons to that higher level. However, in these conjugated pi bonds, where the electrons are a little delocalized, the energy gap is much lower, so it's easier to, to promote those to higher energy levels. So let me just step back for a minute, Andrew. UV-Vis is all about characterizing polymers. Um, people that are familiar with polymers, you know, you pick up a bottle and you don't know what it's made of. You have to flip it upside down and see the little marking just to get a clue, right? Um, even with some of the sophisticated tools that are available, it can be hard to know what's what. Fortunately, we have a tool like UV-Vis that can tell us what a different polymer is by looking at the types of bonds that are present. And it does that by shining light on it and seeing how that light interacts with the material. And you're exactly right. The different type of bonding that's there will cause the light to interact with it in different ways. For example, a certain type of bond might only absorb at a certain frequency, but a different bond would absorb at a different frequency. Absorbance in this case is electrons absorbing the light energy from UV or visible light and being promoted to those higher energy levels. That's right. So let's say that you have a polymer that has uh, carbon-fluorine bonds, maybe a carbon bonded to an OH group versus just carbons bonded to regular hydrogen. What's cool is that when you collect this UV-Vis spectrograph, you can see peaks where these different bonds are present because they're absorbing at different wavelengths. Now, hopefully, the material that you're looking at doesn't have them overlapping one another. That makes the analysis difficult. But in principle, you should be able to see what type of functional groups are there. And you can even start to quantify it by comparing this with standards where they've taken a known material, they've done UV-Vis on it, and you now have a spectra. And you can compare the spectra of your unknown sample versus that, and you can see how it's evolving. Is there an undesired peak that means that there's an impurity? So you could see why this would be a really valuable thing to monitor in real time. You could see you know, is the right phase forming? Are impurities coming or going? It's a pretty powerful tool. So one of the other really interesting things that you can do with UV-Vis is that you can relate concentration, or rather you can calculate concentration for your polymer. So by immersing it in a solvent and passing light through it and measuring absorbance, you can actually measure how much con what the concentration of your polymer is in that solvent. And as you go through a reaction, if you keep measuring this, 
you can determine how the concentration is changing over time. Um, this is a traditional experiment that most MSC students will do, and they relate this using Beer's law. So then to go even on a you know more macroscopic view of it, um, you can essentially find the transparency of your sample, right? So if certain bonds are absorbing light, um, a certain amount of light is also going to be passing through. So by looking at how much light passes through, you can quantitatively tell how transparent your polymer is, if that's what you're looking for. That's exactly right. So after UV vis, which is a powerful te technique in and of itself, there's other things you'd like to measure. A complementary technique to UV vis is FTIR. That stands for Fourier Transform Infrared Spectroscopy. So infrared radiation, this is working in a similar way to UV and vis, in that you're still, you're taking light, you're having it interact with your sample, and you're measuring whether it gets absorbed, whether it reflects, uh, what exactly is happening to it. But there are some fundamental differences. One is we're using infrared light as opposed to UV and vis, but there's some other key differences. With UV vis, you're picking a single wavelength and you're shining it at your sample, but with uh, FTIR, you actually illuminate your sample with a broad spectrum of light, right? And then you change the, the spectrum slightly and it uses a Fourier transform to pull out the interaction with your sample. So there's actually some tricky math going on there, but this has some unique advantages. For one, infrared radiation, because of its different energy wavelengths, it's going to interact with different parts of the, of the molecule. It's going to interact when the dipole vibrates naturally at the same frequency of the absorber. So you know that between bonds, maybe you've seen pictures of molecules vibrating back and forth. This sort of syncs up with those if it's at the right wavelength, right? And these vibrations can be very unique. You can have, you know, where they vibrate in and out of plane, diagonal to each other, all these different types of vibrations can be quantified. So it's not just saying, okay, that's a carbon-hydrogen bond. It can tell you a specific type of you know bond because of the way that it's vibrating, which is a pretty powerful thing. And because of this, you can start to determine a pretty precise composition for the polymer that you're looking at by look, you know, identifying what bonds are present. So if you know your polymer needs to have certain types of bonds in it, this is a good way to monitor that. But it's not just limited to chemical analysis. You can also measure the tacticity, uh, which is essentially the regularity of your molecule. You know, between the chiral centers of the molecule, how regular are those and how much order do you have? This affects a lot of physical properties. Uh, you can also look at the crystallinity of your molecule, and you can also look at molecular strain, uh, as Dr. Sparks was talking about with looking at the types of bonds you're seeing. Um, and we'll probably talk more about this when we do an episode on Raman, but Raman and IR complement one another. IR is really good at looking at polar molecules, whereas Raman is looking at nonpolar molecules. Um, and then there are some specific advantages of FTR. For one, because you're illuminating it with sort of all these different wavelengths at the same time, your signal-to-noise ratio is just way better. Um, for a given scan time, you get much better scans with FTIR than you would with UV vis because you're collecting over the whole range rather than slowly changing the wavelength each time. Another advantage of this over these dispersive measurements like UV vis is that dispersive measurements have to have a monochromator with entrance and exit slits, which restricts the amount of light that's actually going through it. But in the FTIR, you only have an aperture, and so you're actually just collecting more data in that regard as well. And then the last thing, they call it cones advantage, is because you have this wavelength that's calibrated by a laser beam, and that's the, the laser beam is going to be of a known wavelength, and so it has a sort of built-in calibration, so you get really precise, accurate measurements from an FTIR as well. 
So let's talk about another thing that they're going to be measuring, which is differential refractometer. What's that about, Andrew? Yeah, so the previous two things we covered were rather complex instruments and involves quite a lot of complex math in order to get data out of them. Even some more simple techniques can allow you to elucidate quite a lot of information. So in a differential refractometer, essentially we're measuring the refractive index of an analyte or the polymer we're interested relative to its solvent. Um, and so this is really useful for monitoring changes in concentration over time. And you can extract a lot of composition information from this method as well, um, because the complexity of the polymer will change its refractive index. And so in a copolymer, for instance, where you have essentially two alternating monomer units, um, the refractive index will actually vary linearly with the composition. So as you add more units to this or the complexity increases to an extent, your refractive index will adjust, will vary linearly as well. This is another really interesting way of characterizing polymers that doesn't require a lot of technology and can still give you quite a lot of information. Okay. The last technique that we want to say something about is viscometry. Obviously with polymers, how viscous is it is a pretty important question. If you're not familiar with viscosity, that term, it's just referring to how flowable the, the fluid is. Is it like honey in that it doesn't flow very quickly? Is it like water in that it flows really easily? Or is it somewhere in between? How do you quantify that is actually pretty clever. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, very often, they'll do these rheological measurements where they take a little spindle, they can dip it into the polymer solution, and then they rotate the spindle, and they just measure how much force was required to make it rotate, right, at a certain velocity, and you can uh, you can actually determine from that, if you're using a calibrated spindle size, what the viscosity of the solution is. So that's uh, another important characteristic that is often measured with polymer processing. From measurements of viscosity, you can get something known as intrinsic viscosity. And intrinsic viscosity uh, essentially gives the properties that are dependent on the polymer that's being added. So you can almost find the, the exact measurements as you add X number of polymer, your viscosity changes by this much. And from the viscosity equation, we know you can also start doing calculations about the molecular weight of your polymer, which is also a very interesting and useful thing to calculate. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and have a word from our sponsors, and then we're going to come back and we're going to have the interview with Alex Reed, the co-founder and CEO of Fluence Analytics, and talk to him about what exactly these real-time measurements mean for somebody in the polymer processing space. This episode is sponsored by MatMatch. If you've heard our podcast before, then you already know that we're big fans of this free-to-use service. MatMatch is a website that helps engineers find the materials that they're looking for for the next project. Speaking of which, I set this stupid New Year's resolution to build this absurdly complicated Halloween costume for my son. He loves The Legend of Zelda, and he wanted to be these robots called Guardians. And they have these really cool glowing weapons and shields. So I figured I would embed LEDs inside of acrylic plastic to get that really cool glowing effect. So the question is, where do you buy acrylic? Um, I actually went to Home Depot and they had pretty limited selection. And then I thought to myself, what about MatMatch? So when I check MatMatch, I noticed that they have 12 different suppliers of acrylic. You can look for different strengths. You can look at different blends. They even have different colors. So they have some cool things that you can consider. If you haven't heard of MatMatch before, we hope that you'll give it a chance. It's free for you to search and use things. And if you are a vendor and you want your material to show up on MatMatch so that other engineers can find it and use your product, 
consider getting in touch with them. They also have a really great new feature that allows you to talk directly with suppliers on their platform. If you're looking at a product and you have some questions about it, you can go and talk directly to the supplier of it and get all those questions answered. The Materialism Podcast is also sponsored by Materials Today. Visit materialstoday.com or elsevier.com to find out more about their journals, books, conferences, and related programs. For those who are listeners but aren't familiar with Materials Today, the journal, it's a fantastic journal. Impact Factors in the 20s, it's great. They publish really high-end stuff, and we're proud to be associated with them. We appreciate their support as well. Okay, we are joined by Alex Reed, co-founder and CEO of Fluence Analytics. Alex, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yes, thank you. Appreciate you guys having me on the podcast here. And um, as you said, I'm Alex Reed, I'm co-founder and CEO of Fluence Analytics. Uh, we're based in New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, our company is a spinoff from Tulane University. So that's why we're here in New Orleans. Okay. Did you attend Tulane University? Is this something that you worked on when you were at the university? Yes. Uh, so a little bit of history on my side is uh, I actually, I, I grew up here in New Orleans and my father's a physics professor there. And interestingly enough, uh, I was very interested in working in the lab. So I, I grew up working in the lab with him. Uh, he had invented a number of technologies that became the basis for our company. And so over the years, I was very excited about it. And then as I went to school there and then graduated, uh, saw an opportunity to take on the role of the entrepreneur and said, hey, why don't we actually start a business with these ideas? I mean, we've gotten this interest from companies. Uh, they're funding the work. We should do something with this. And so uh, myself, Wayne Reed, my father, uh, our CTO, Mike Trensky, and our chairman, Bill Bottoms, we founded the business and spun it out of the university. So give us an approximate timeline. When did this happen? How far along is this business? Uh, we officially started in 2012, so that's when we formed the company and, and, actually, and executed the license with Tulane for all the intellectual property, and we started operating formally in 2013, so in January of that year, we had actually signed a contract with a local chemical plant, a multinational corporation that had a plant here in Louisiana uh, that was very interested in the work. And we signed a joint development agreement that really started our company because then we actually had some funding and something to work on. And what was your educational background? Did you study physics like your father or something else? No. Uh, so I, I'm actually, I didn't have a technical background. I studied uh, economics and uh, I, I did work in the lab, so I knew quite a bit. I was op doing a lot of the, operating a lot of the equipment, uh, doing some data analysis. Uh, so I kind of learned on the job a lot of what I needed to know. And then over the years, I've picked up quite a bit about this field of chemistry, polymers, and, uh, and analysis, and then software, everything that kind of rolls up into what we're doing. That's cool. I think it's a little bit less common to see people go from non-technical over to a technical role. Uh, it's typically you get your technical side in education and not the other way around. So that's cool that you're able to make that transition. Yeah. And I, I would say that the key to making that work is to have good, solid technical people to work with. So yeah. having that commercial commercial side partnered with uh, the more technical side. And then, you know, there's a lot of give and take between the two, but you're right. I mean, it is certainly harder to go the other way. 
Yeah, so you talked about securing funding in 2014, I believe. What were some of the challenges that you faced when starting? There's I mean, quite, a, quite a few starting a, a business in the you know, hard tech materials, whatever you want to call it, space. I mean, you know, some of the times uh, the development cycles can be long. Uh, you know, we have a hardware component in addition to a software component to our core technology, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, and so for us, uh, being able to build the right team to develop that. And then, as I said before, the key thing for the funding was actually being able to work directly with customers. And then once we had that customer validation, uh, we also were able to bring in some federal government funding. And then eventually we're able to raise uh, venture capital uh, based on that traction. But I'd say the core was getting some initial traction with the customer. And that can be a challenge. So can I have you tell me a little bit about your company? What is your product? What does it do? What's the problem that you're addressing in industry? Yes. Uh, so our core product is ACOM. Uh, it's a real-time measurement tool for polymer reactors. It helps chemical companies increase their profits and quality um, and while reducing waste. So we're doing real-time measurement. Uh, currently, a lot of those companies are taking single data point offline lab tests. Um, so we believe with ACOMP, we could standardize and optimize chemical reactions with rich data sets we've never seen before. So, I mean, for us, uh, being able to generate some of this information online in real time is going to provide invaluable insights to our customers. Um, and so that's what the core patents are around. And we've got 17 issued and 31 pending now. Um, and what we've seen is that the value can be worth up to several million dollars a year uh, per line that it's installed on. So are you primarily just providing quality, quality assurance in real time so that you don't end up with wasted product? Or are you using this data to forecast or change uh, conditions in real time? What exactly is it doing? Great question. Yeah, so initially it's uh, real-time measurement of quality and cycle time. So where you are in the process at all times, you can see that with our technology. And you nailed it when you kind of asked that second question, which is the obvious next piece, which is what we've been working on and we have some preliminary algorithms to do, is uh, to take that data and actually predict feed forward and directly control the process based on those measurements. And then with that, you're actually going to be able to, uh, in the future, enable newer types of materials and then potentially also make things more sustainable uh, by providing that information. That's very interesting. Uh, you know, I work in the field of machine learning, materials informatics, so I'm a big believer that um, this data is going to transform the field of material science not only in the predictions out front, but in processing like you're describing. I think that having that information in real time will enable us to do really cool predictive you know, processing. Would you mind talking a little bit about how you capture the data and what characterization techniques are employed in your technology? Sure. Uh, yeah, so what we have is a full, it's fully automated system that directly interfaces with the process. So we are physically with our hardware in the plant uh, taking a continuous sample from whatever process that we're measuring. And that's done, uh, as I mentioned, through a series of hardware components like you know, pumps, mixing chambers, 
that we've automated with the programmable logic controller, so a PLC. And so with that piece of hardware, we're then able to run that sample stream through currently four detectors, and we're actually working on integrating others. Uh, we use static light scattering, uh, UV vis, so uh, UV spectroscopy, uh, refractive index, and reduced intrinsic viscosity. So those are the, the four key measurements we're making today. We've also done some shear-based measurements with the viscosity, and we've validated in the lab, and we're working to integrate things like infrared and particle size. Uh, so it's really a platform that is making uh, a, a huge amount, a huge number of measurements here that can give us uh, a lot of information about the properties of the, that polymer. Um, and so with the, each of those detectors, like light scattering, you can calculate molecular weight, radius of gyration of the material. Uh, like as I mentioned with the viscometer, you get intrinsic viscosity. And so sometimes the differentials of those can give you information about branching or other phenomena that are common in industry. So, you know, I could talk all day about uh, a lot of the specifics and measurements, but I think that gives you a good high level view of, of the detectors and the system. Cool. Can I ask, uh, having not worked in the polymer industry, I'm trying to picture this. So you've got some big reaction vessel. Are your probes inserted into that or are you extracting sample in real time or is it some of both? Uh, we are extracting small amount continuously and that's what, what a lot of our development was around in some of that sampling system, um, obviously, and then the integration. And then I did also, I don't think I mentioned er earlier, but uh, on top of all that, uh, that data stream goes into software that we then produce analyses from. And so that's really the core and the value is all those measurements that I said that we could generate are done through that software that we've, we've built into the system. Do you typically sell this as sort of a package deal or is there some degree of customizability? Do you tailor it to the needs of the client? So, uh, there are a few different configurations of the system, but each configuration is pretty broadly applicable within a range of chemistries, if that makes sense. And yeah. so, what, yeah, so that we try to take more of that approach, which is core, most of the system is standard. And then depending on the type of chemistry, you might change a few of the modules, but in general, it's fairly standard configuration um, with some tweaks. And uh, we do sell it. I think you, you got a little bit about business model question there too, is but we also started to offer leasing and subscription services. So, and it is complete package. So it's not just the hardware, it's the hardware with the software on there. And then on top of that, we do plan to build out um, some of the other software tools that we're working on. But you don't serve as consultants for the companies where you're constantly providing the analysis. You give them the tools and they'll do what they will with the data that they collect. Uh, that's right, the analyzed data. So a lot of the smarts, so to speak, are designed into the software that's embedded in the system. Um, and so a lot of the, I guess, more sophisticated analyses are done automatically. Uh, we actually have worked with companies in that data science type role where we are uh, working with them to look at the data, look at trends, look at correlations. A lot of times the plants are really busy um, and, and people don't have time to sit there and mine data unless they have a problem. So 
uh, depending on the relationship with the customer, we do, we definitely do offer the opportunity to do some of that, that interpretation and data science as a separate. So I'm curious, are there case studies or partners that you're allowed to talk about where you could sort of walk us through the value of this sort of approach? Yes. Uh, so if, if you saw, uh, if you go to our website, you could see a few of the case studies, but um, well, our first one, which is the one we started the company around, was with a company called Nalco, um, and we had a, a publication in, I think, Chemical Processing Magazine. Um, and so basically, the, the core issue at a high level, without getting into any specifics, for them it was uh, being able to understand the cycle time of their batches. So say, you know, you have uh, product A, B, C, maybe you're a specialty manufacturer, you're making 12 different things in the same reactor. Uh, knowing when to start the next batch can be worth a lot of time. Uh, so that's called cycle time. And so the total time that they are processing, they're trying to shorten. But a lot of times they're waiting on offline testing to validate with certain quality metrics before they can release batches. And so what we were able to do is in real time, give them information and even at certain points predict forward when batches were gonna be complete and hit a few of the target specs that they wanted. And so then they would know uh, when in a dynamic way to stop that batch and go to the next one. And so the total savings on, on that case, I think it was between 15 and 20% on, on cycle time, uh, just eliminating that backend lab and, and all those other issues that they had. Very um, cool. And then, yeah. Uh, just kind of thinking, uh, if you're monitoring, say, reaction going to completion, how much uh, core material science knowledge are you drawing on versus empirical, right? Are you understanding like, oh, this is an Avrami relationship, and so if I collect a few data points, I can forecast out when it will be done? Or are you just monitoring in real time when you're saying, you know, we're 95% or 99% or whatever the number is complete, we can just call it done? Um, so I, I guess, I mean, we are making direct physics based measurements. I mean, so, uh, I wouldn't say it's empirical just because it's, you know, a real time uh, analysis of the actual material while it's being processed. Um, however, you can develop empirical methods around that, uh, once you have that data. So I'd say at the, at the base level, the value is already there just by making and providing those measurements on the material properties directly. Uh, but then as you build up data, data sets, uh, we've actually seen and, and built some of these things in where you can build models off of real data um, that can give you predictions. Um, so, yes, I mean, initially it is just, hey, we're at 95, 96, 99 percent. Uh, but then with certain uh, extrapolations and fits, you can start to say, okay, oh, based on uh, the reaction rate that it's going to be at 99.9, .9, which is where you need it uh, in the next 30 minutes. So it, it gets better and better as you get closer to the end. So Alex, I've got a question for you. Um, as somebody who isn't familiar with polymers largely, and I'm, I know the basics, but I don't do active research in that area. I'm kind of curious, um, how many of these experiments, you say that the analysis is done behind the scenes and outcomes the number, the material property, is your innovation in that process of going from uh, measurement to analysis, 
or is it in the measurement itself? Because when I think of getting the material property out of a lot of the things I care about, there's a lot of human touch still to it. It's definitely not reached human out of the loop experiments for a lot of the properties I care about. Is it the case where you can do that analysis without humans for your software? Uh, I mean, yes, that is the whole uh, point of our technology is to be able to take the, at least the ones that we're doing. Now, I'm not familiar with the ones that you might be doing, but the ones that we're doing is to go ahead and actually move it to the point where they are automated. And there is a lot that goes into it in terms of how you process the data. And you know, there's all kinds of things, you know, baseline connections, selections, trends, uh, all of that that we need to factor in. And so we are actively always building that into the software. Um, and so it does continue to get better and better. But for the core applications that we're working on, uh, we know that we can provide the measurements that we're saying. And then as we continue to expand uh, capability, then we, we write that into the software. But so yeah, I guess, I mean, that's, a, that's a great question. Well, yeah. I guess like to, maybe to rephrase my question, is your innovation, meaning your patents and your IP landscape, is that centered around that uh, software analysis component or is it in the collection? Did you have to redesign the, the sensors themselves to function in the in-situ environment? Or is your innovation around, you know, however, the, however you get the data, it's how you process it into the material property? Got it. Yeah, so basically it's both. Uh, but we are using thing, measurements that are known in the industry and have a lot of publication and knowledge about them. So it, we haven't developed entirely new analysis methods or techniques in, in terms of the actual measurement. Uh, but we have had to redesign and change the actual hardware for our application because we're using a lot of those measurements in a very different way than they're used currently. So today, a lot of those are done in a lab where you have uh, GPC, you know, gel permeation chromatography, for example, um, and you're doing it in very low flow rates and things like that. We're actually trying to go higher flow rate, more industrial. And okay. so we've had to make changes there. But... The second piece is really where a lot of our patents are, which is exactly what you described, is taking that continuous data set, which no one has done before with these flow-through type measurements, uh, and then turning it into the analyzed values. So a lot of RIP is indeed around the analysis that is then baked into the software. So yes, thanks for that question. How hard is it to... So uh, I've asked a little bit about this because working in machine learning, sometimes we try and patent things and they'll say it's really hard to patent code. Um, you can copyright it and uh, you can try to do trade secret or something, uh, but you actually tried to patent that. Uh, so a lot of what we, we are patenting is the, uh, the, the process in how we actually get the results using as a core of the types of measurements that we're making. So. It, it, there's so methods and devices claims in there around uh, specific types of analyses that we can do. So it's a little more specific than like patenting a piece of software. So it's more gotcha. around the yeah. output. Okay. Um, well, tell us about some of the challenges you ran into in the process of getting a, you know, uh, any startup is, is impressive when it gets up off the ground. What were some of the unique challenges that you faced as you tried to get this thing going? Yeah, uh, well, I'm, I'm a first-time entrepreneur, and so Congrats. because of that, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, hey, 
but because of that, you actually, you learn quite a bit. And so, um, I, you know, a lot of the challenges are around uh, hiring, recruiting the right team, uh, good dialogue with the customers and understanding where the market opportunities are and, and not losing focus on some of the, the key areas. And then, you know, funding. So I mean, I could go into any of those, but starting, you know, as a first time entrepreneur, having uh, mentors and people that have been there before, I would say is extremely critical. Uh, Cause while I have made mistakes, going into, you know, as we've done this company for the past six years, uh, there have been quite a few more mistakes that I've avoided because of those relationships. So, yeah. yeah. And speaking of customers, what is industry's response to your technology? Do they like it? Are they interested in integrating it into their systems? Yes. Um, so that's how we've been able to continue to build traction is, you know, we, we get into some applications, uh, we're able to show some value. Um, it is slow because, uh, at least in this initial phase, the past, in the early stages, there was a lot of development proving out the technology, but then as we started to actually build some commercial traction, um, getting companies to share data and, uh, get information out there about the value uh, can be a challenge. So we've actually been working with a lot of our customers more recently on uh, paid trials and uh, actually getting them to share in you know non-confidential ways some of the value in the data. And so in the past couple of years, we've actually been able to pick that up quite a bit through those methods um, and, ha and have you know, quite a few customers now. Um, and I should also mention that in the past, uh, year and a half, we've been adding strategic relationships. So as I mentioned before, in, in 2017, uh, I think in April of 17, we raised our first venture financing with a group called Energy Innovation Capital, which is a, a top VC firm in the energy uh, space. And uh, since then, we've actually brought in Mitsubishi Chemical and JSR Corporation, which are two large petrochemical companies that have venture groups as investors. So not, not only are we getting the, the traction on the commercial side, but we've also built these strategic partnerships where we have them as investors. And we're, we're actually always you know, working with different companies in different ways. So industry has been very receptive. Alex, looking forward, are there other techniques and capabilities I'm sure you guys are developing that you'd like to implement in the future? Yeah, uh, I, I think we talked about it a little bit earlier, but um, infrared is one where we're, uh, we're looking to integrate. And what's cool about what we're doing is that uh, because we've built this platform, really, uh, we're able to add anything we want to this thing and so we can generate more data uh and a lot of that is customer driven so as we've gotten a lot of feedback from customers uh you know a complement to what we we're doing would be to add some infrared capability of the system for example um and so that's a matter of working with the right companies getting you know detectors integrated and then data handling and so for us it's fairly straightforward to do. And once we have that critical mass of customer interest, we do it. And that's how we generally will look at our roadmap as we see what all the opportunities are. And there's a lot more that, you know, I'm, I'm getting that I won't talk about, but, um, 
and so we'll you know we'll prioritize those and then work on them and add them in. Uh, and so in addition to, for example, adding those new types of measurements, uh, we are also, and I, I actually think it was very early in the podcast when you asked the question about control of reactors, uh, we have developed um, IP and some preliminary algorithms that we've only tested at the lab, you know, pilot scale so far, but um, to drive control directly of the process based on our measurements. So that is a very active area for us. Uh, and then the, the part where we're talking about incorporating machine learning and correlation to other process and lab parameters, that's a huge piece for us as well, because now we're building up these, these large data sets on real-time properties. Now we can provide context to a lot of the other data that's already available in plants. And they have large historians with tons of information already in them, but now you have context at any point in time on what you're making. And so those are some of the other areas that are more you know, software control side that we're working on in addition to measurement. When you say controlling reactions, I mean, I'm trying to picture what this might look like. Let's say that you have a, a measurement technique that tells you how far to completion something is. Are you just talking about plugging that number into like a PID loop with temperature or time on the reactor or what? Uh, I think it depends on the process. I mean, some, if it's a continuous process, for example, you might adjust things like your catalyst feed rates, your, yeah, your temperature mm -hmm. rates. You, you may not be able to get away with a simple PID loop. Uh, I mean, in the small scale reactors in the lab, we actually have. So we've done uh, almost, it's, it's pretty cool. We've done almost a PID loop to control molecular weight to a set point. Uh, and, and we were adjusting two, two parameters. We were adjusting monomer and catalyst feeds. Um, and so you could potentially do it, but as you get into larger reactors, uh, you have to be careful. You know, I mean, there's huge, huge uh, safety requirements that you have to meet. So a lot of them already have some form of uh, inferential modeling that you may be able to tie into. So if you can provide better measurements into those, uh, you could provide maybe suggested actions to an operator. And so really how we do it will depend on what companies are already doing and then how you can do that safely for full feedback. So I'm picturing how companies might use this, uh, or rather, in the absence of your technology, a company trying to do that same sort of development would have to run a batch under a certain set of conditions, stop it, do their full characterization. Uh, now they've got a single data point, basically, and they'd have to run a completely separate you know, experiment to, to gather additional data. And what you can do is in real time, collect just an enormous amount of data, and that's really the value then. Absolutely. Oh, you nailed it. Because right now, if you wanted to even get close to what we're doing, you'd have to have someone pulling samples from a reactor every, I mean, maybe every minute would get you close. So you can imagine a six hour reaction trying to pull manual samples and run them in the lab and do you know, all those measurements, uh, or even if you're doing it every 15 minutes. So exactly. So no one does that just because it's so labor intensive and difficult. Uh, you are stuck with, you know, maybe you take one in the middle of the reaction, one at the end, and no one does that at industrial scale unless you need to for control. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we, we were able to give them that whole data set for each run. So looking 
10 years in the future, what's the long-term implication of this technology? How will it transform or, or not uh, the field? What do you think? Uh, some of the, the cool areas that we've had some preliminary discussions with companies about and researchers uh, are in the smart materials. So, you know, things that um, are stimuli responsive. So, you know, the heat, light, you know, whatever it is, well, they'll either change, a, a, go through a phase transition or go through some kind of transition. Um, that we think, if you can enable that type of material to be produced at a low enough cost, then you could change that whole industry because, I mean, imagine self-healing plastics or, uh, you know, things that, that over time would, would um, provide I don't know, think of coatings or, you know, whatever it is that fluff off very slowly. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different things you could do uh, that we, you can't currently do just because that chemistry is very difficult. So we think that with better measurement and better control, uh, you could enable newer, better classes of materials uh, and then also change the way that they're operating today. So there's the short-term gain, but then long-term, can you enable new production? Um, I also saw that you do a little bit of work on with biopharmaceuticals. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, from my experience with the industry, I know that consistency is really key, especially when you get into FDA requirements. So I have to imagine that this is pretty useful in that field. Yeah, it's uh, and that, and you're right. It's a completely different game there because in that world uh companies are actually very willing to share data with each other because their biggest uh goal is to like you said meet fda requirements so they're all looking at best practices and, and everyone wants to be doing similar things so uh, what we've noticed there is yeah i mean and especially in that protein peptide type space uh there are the, there are a lot of methods out there and tools. Um, and I think a lot of the researchers are, are continuing to learn at a very rapid rate, uh, the behaviors of these proteins when you put them into formulations, for example. So a lot of our work is focused around that uh, drug discovery formulation development area. Uh, we actually have a different product line for that called Argen, and we have some IP to actually take some of the principles from Argen and ACOMP into um, an online type measurement tool for it. We haven't gotten to that point yet. So that's some, some more future stuff in the, in the biopharma world. Okay, well, thanks again, Alex, for joining us. This is a really interesting company. I could see it being pretty transformative as we move towards AI-enabled um, control of laboratories, human out-of-the-loop experimentations. Uh, this is clearly some really relevant technology to a field that I think is going to be transformative. So we appreciate your time. Yes, thanks. thanks for having me on. It's been great. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We know that by now you've finished the entirety of the Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu catalog, so don't worry. We'll continue producing high-quality content for you to listen to. As always, we'll have links in the show notes to all the articles that we referenced for this episode that you can use to learn even more about polymer characterization and fluence analytics. Special thanks to Colobite and Alphabot for the rad music that they provided to us. You can find them on Spotify and Bandcamp. If you have an idea for a future episode, feel free to hit us up on Instagram with the handle at materialism.podcast 
or send us an email at materialism.podcast at gmail.com. Catch you next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials. <laughs>